What's up, everyone, and welcome into the third episode of The Joshua Perry Show. Of course, I am your host, former Buckeye captain, national champ, NFL player, and current Big Ten Network and 97.1 The Fan Analyst, Joshua Perry. This is the podcast where we talk sports, life, and everything else. We are broadcasting on the Zedia Network. Follow the Zedia Network on Twitter for big-time podcasts and great content. That's at Zedia Network. Also, this episode of this podcast, The Joshua Perry Show, is sponsored by Todd Pennington with Columbus-based Revolution Mortgage. If you're looking to purchase a new home or get out of renting, now is the time with historically low rates and fast closings. Todd can have you into the home of your dreams. Contact Todd Pennington at 614-390-9520 or visit revolutionmortgage.com slash tpennington for more info. Revolution Mortgage is an equal housing lender, NMLS ID 168046. Seriously, everyone, give Todd a call. He'll take good care of you. And uh, for those of you who don't know, I sell real estate here in Central Ohio with ERA Real Solutions Realty. Uh, Todd Pennington is one of my go-to guys. He is a fantastic lender, great communication. He will lock you into great rates and he can close on time. He closes every time. Uh, so I do highly recommend Todd if you're looking to buy a piece of real estate, he is the guy to go with. So this show is gonna be uh, a big time show actually. We got some craziness going on in the world that I wanted to comment about. We also have a great interview with the legendary coach, three-time national championship coach and dear friend of mine, Urban Meyer. And then I'll end of course with a word, uh, but I wanted to start kind of telling this story real quick. My fiance has two little sisters. They're very young, they're six and three. And we take care of them from time to time. They spend a ton of time with us. We'll have them overnight for days at a time. Um, but as you can imagine with the six and three year old, things get a little bit out of hand. And Madison also has a 15 year old brother. So um, Madison, her two little sisters went over to her mother's house for a little bit of time and they spent um, time with her brother, Mason. He's got kind of this like basement apartment set up super cool for a 15 year old, but got Xbox, got his gaming computer. He's got a couch down there, all kinds of stuff. And the girls were tearing it up. They were running them up down there, acting a fool. And Mason's like their biggest champion. You know, anytime they're about to get in trouble, oh, go easy on them. They're so little, this, that, and the third. And he was pretty distraught um, because they were tearing all his stuff up. So we get them back. And Madison was actually going to a memorial service for her friend who recently passed away. So I had the duties of watching the girls um, just by myself. And it wasn't the first time I've ever done it, but it was probably the most disappointed I've been um, watching them. So. I ended up putting them, um, and this was inadvertent how it happened, but I ended up putting them in a four hour timeout. And so how it started was they came in, I chastised them, I told them what they did was very disappointing and how I expected more of them and their behavior was unbecoming of two uh, young ladies who typically do the right thing. And so, you know, kind of rolled off their back. They were like, yeah, 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 whatever. I went, uh, got some out the kitchen, came back, they were wrestling on the floor. So I ended up separating them. I put them uh, at the kitchen table on opposing sides and I told them that they were gonna be in timeout until Madison got back. Now, Maddie is somebody who emotionally doesn't deal with loss very well. And so I didn't expect her really to linger at this memorial service. I expected her um, to send her regards, to spend a little bit of time, of course, with the family and some of her friends, share some stories um, and really enjoy uh, the person that they had lost out of their lives and then she was gonna come back uh, home ended up being four hours that she was gone. So since I'm a man of my word, I told them they weren't getting out of timeout until Madison got back home. So they ended up spending four hours in timeout. 
and know people. I did not feel bad whatsoever. I was a person uh, as a child who spent hours upon hours in timeout. My parents had actually like a timeout chair in the laundry room and I used to put books underneath it uh, just so I could pass the time that I knew I was going to spend in there. I just, you know, I was a man, a young man with a ton of energy um, and a lot of opinions, which got me in trouble because I was always outspoken, never afraid to hold them back. Um, so I was trying to teach those girls a lesson that I feel like shaped me and helped mold me into the guy that I am today with the four hour timeout. They got out, they watched the movie. It was all good to end the night. So I just wanted to share that story. Um, transitioning into something a little bit heavier. Um, and I think something that's really salient right now, it's kind of gripped the news cycle, um, not just in the mainstream, but also in sports and other facets for, for the last week, essentially. But um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin, um, there was a police shooting of another black male um, Jacob Blake was shot in the back seven times as he was reaching into his vehicle. Um, you know, there was the whole non-compliance thing, the whole we didn't know what he was reaching for thing, all of that, and I'll, I'll kind of get into that in a little bit. But um, another example of the the plight of Black folks, truly, um, in the United States of America, and it's it's really disappointing to see this play out over and over again. I think what's even more disappointing is it plays out for us actually to see. Um, and we consume this. I've, I've talked about this before, but that consumption to a certain point is unhealthy for somebody like me, a black male, um, who can who can almost see themselves in a situation. Um, and, and maybe not me as much, but like I have a younger brother who's uh, six foot eight, about 280 pounds, and he's got autism. Um, 24 years old he is. And he drives around. And one of the things that comes along with his autism is the social cues and his ability to handle stress. And so I, I sit there and I wonder if Jared got pulled over in a fit the description type of scenario living out here in the suburbs where there's only a few of us anyway, um, does, does Jared get the benefit of the doubt? Does Jared end up, if he's in a situation where, um, you know, he's, his behavior is a little bit erratic. He's maybe not following the directions as clearly as an officer would like. Is that a situation where um, they give him the benefit of the doubt or does Jared end up with seven shots in his back? And, and I think that's why people and specifically black people, black males are so gripped whenever this news comes out. And like I said before, you can, you can make all of what you want. He had the rap sheet, which I don't think is important at the time of uh, the encounter. Um, he was not complying, but you know, there've been videos that we've seen where black folks have complied and they still ended up getting brutalized and assaulted by the police, uh, because, you know, they fit the description and they thought something was going on that wasn't actually going on. There have been other situations, which is probably, uh, even more disappointing and really shows the difference where, uh, white folks aren't complying. I, there's a video going around, uh, where this white guy's talking, gets pulled over by the cops, he's on private property, he feels like he's not in the wrong, he's out of his car, and then he goes back into his car, same thing Jacob Blake did, the cop doesn't shoot him, there was one point in the video where he tells the police officer, I will effing kill you, and the police officer still didn't shoot him, and to me, you know, we talk about, well, we don't know if that, if he was reaching in the car for a weapon that could have killed him, if somebody's threatening to effing kill you, and they're not complying with your orders, like, we, it, the moral of that story is we've seen restraint out of police officers. That, that cop, in my mind, that guy was aggressive. He wasn't following orders. He was back and forth out of his car. You don't know what was in there. There was somebody else in there who could have had a weapon too. That was one of those situations where 
if we're, we're going based off of we don't know what could have happened, you feel like he would have been in the right to draw a weapon and use it, but he didn't. He showed restraint. And I feel like Black people don't get the benefit of the doubt when it comes to that restraint. And it's super disappointing. So we have that. In the aftermath, of course, we see the demonstrations. We all know how this goes. It's pretty peaceful throughout the days, and then the sun goes down, and it's just all hell breaks loose. And I feel, I feel really bad um, because I, I actually know a lot of people who are protesters and organizers within communities who are acting for change. Um, and when the sun goes down and people start breaking into stores and they start looting and they start setting stuff on fire, um, it's, it's a really disappointing uh, interaction that happens there, uh, destruction that happens there, because uh, it, it kills the momentum in the movement for people who want the right things to go on that are seeking the change. Um, but no less, that's exactly what we saw happen. And then enter 17-year-old uh, Illinois resident Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, he was there apparently to protect folks' businesses and ended up um, shooting and killing uh, a couple of protesters that were out there, um, injuring a few more. And that was damning when you when you kind of watched it i you know there's always a what happened beforehand and i'm not going to necessarily get into that um because we don't we don't know the full story but just watching that scene of police officers responding to a shooting where two people are dead and here you have a white guy who has a gun strapped to his chest who gets to walk right past the police without so much as a a simple questioning a simple detainment they would have been within their full uh, scope of responsibilities to re to detain him at the scene of that crime um, is absolutely crazy to me. And then you get all these stories. Well, you know, he's protecting people's businesses. And if the cops don't do it, we need law and order. And even people going as far as calling this guy a hero, which absolutely blows my mind. Um, but I'll, I'll pose a couple questions to you off of that is number one, if you see a black man walking away from a shooting scene, what is the likelihood that He's just going to be able to walk away without anybody stopping and asking questions. And I'm, I'm asking that truly for people to consider the situation here. He was armed, walking away from a shooting. It's not a bridge too far to stop him and ask him some questions about his potential involvement in that situation. If it checks out, you let him go. If not, obviously, you arrest the man. So that's my number one question. And then number two, and I, I think this is a, a legitimate question to ask, is what is a 17-year-old doing um, at a, a protest, at a riot, whatever you guys want to call it, um, at night protecting somebody else's business? And I guess the thing that really, I guess the, the other question that stems off of that is like, if to me, if I own a business or I own a home and I'm standing outside and I'm a gun owner and I have my gun and I'm protecting my, my property from destruction, that's one thing. But I, I don't think I would feel comfortable with somebody else standing outside of my home or business just out of the goodwill, and I put that in air quotes of their heart, to protect my assets with their weapons. Because you get into a situation, is the guy crazy enough to actually kill somebody? Is the guy 17? You know, like all these things. And so the question really is like, what the hell was he doing there? Why did that even make sense? Like, why are we even trying to normalize the fact that he was doing that? I don't care if you think it's about law and order. I don't care if you think it's about, you know, 
Antifa and you think it's about BLM as a terrorist group and we need civilian militias to protect, whatever. I, I don't care. Like the legitimate question is why are we trying to normalize that? Because when you boil it down, now I have the question of, because people are saying it's self-defense what he did. And I watched the video and, you know, clearly at some point he was under attack and we don't know what happened before. And we may never know the, the true facts of that story. But at some point it looked like he was under duress. He's shooting off this gun, kills a couple of people. Well, it's self-defense. They were attacking him. So then I'll ask again, is it by definition really self-defense if you are a minor out of state? you have a gun that you're supposed to be operating with adult supervision and you're defending somebody else's property at the time. Because I'm not exactly sure that anybody would say that it is wise or legal to defend somebody else's property with a firearm if you're not being paid per contract by that company or that person to defend their property, number one. Number two, I don't know if you can really call, and I'm not a legal expert, so we'll have to call one in one of these days, but I don't know if you can even actually legally use a firearm that you are illegally in possession of, or is an illegal firearm, illegally in possession of, meaning you're 17 across state lines, you're supposed to have adult supervision. Um, an illegal firearm, which isn't this case, would be somebody having a gun that they literally, it's illegal to own that type of gun specifically. But can you actually claim self-defense if the weapon you use to defend yourself, you are in illegal possession of? I think that's a valid question to ask. So we're normalizing too much here. The fact of the matter is I get this crazy juxtaposition of black man potentially reaching for a weapon, eight shots, to, or nine, excuse me, seven shots to the back, which in case anybody was wondering, that police officer was trying to kill him. You're not supposed to survive seven shots to the back. And at least we'll get a situation where Jacob Blake gets to tell his story. Um, and I'm really, really, really anxious to hear what he has to say about that interaction. Um, and then we have Kyle Rittenhouse who killed two people and walked away, went home that night. Absolutely crazy. To follow all this up, we have a sheriff department in uh, the Kenosha area that I believe has dropped the ball in terms of their leadership. Their language, when they were talking about what happened, they said had those folks not been out after curfew, they never would have died. And my response to that is had Kyle Rittenhouse not come into Kenosha after curfew as a minor, those people wouldn't have died either as one response to that. He also said instead of two people were murdered or two people were shot and killed, he said as a result, two people died. And I think that type of language, and it's something that we've normalized as a society from mainstream media, um, from people who are in leadership, to use passive voice to try to lessen the blow and maybe even subvert liability on some of these topics is pretty disappointing. Um, and then to follow that up to the sheriff, which is an elected uh, position, if folks are wondering, also said that he had not seen the footage of the shooting and there was actually a video that came out that showed the sheriff who was responding um, actually did see the video when he responded to the scene of the shooting of Jacob Blake. So it's really, really interesting um, how we get here and then people wonder why folks can't trust law enforcement. I'm not saying not to, because I'm somebody who personally believes in complying with law enforcement. I'm going to, for the most part, trust law enforcement, but for people to ask the question, why can't you blindly trust law enforcement? I think it would come down to some folks have 
a different experience. And you can see from some of the information that's come out why folks would have that different experience and say that they don't feel comfortable um, with law enforcement. So out of this, and here I am on my soapbox, out of this, pro leagues responded. The NBA walked out that night. They decided they weren't going to play games. They released a lot of statements. I thought it was something that was going to mount into a really, really, really powerful uh, demonstration from prominent players within society. And then they kind of broke my heart. So what it was, people are saying, they said at first, you know, the NBA is protesting. And I was like, no, it's not a protest. It's a labor strike because, you know, these guys are the labor. They're not working. It's awesome. They're going to be able to affect people into change. This and the third. And it ended up actually being a protest because they did it for one day. You can't hardly call that a strike. Um, and I was really hoping that they would stick to their guns and spend a little bit of time away from the bubble. And I say it because of this is the players and the owners split money. They split money and revenue share from TV networks, which get money from advertisers. So if you are an owner, if you are a TV network, which I know I get into this, boycotting TV networks is a weird place to be because a lot of folks end up getting hurt um, in an industry which is already hurting for content right now. That's a different conversation for a different day. And then the advertisers, like I said before, if you can pressure the owners into spending some of their dollars on social justice initiatives so the TV networks aren't pissed at them, and in turn, the advertisers aren't mad that they're wasting money sell, or buying ads that aren't going to actually run because there are no games. I think that's where the change comes from. When the owners aren't making the money, when the TV networks have nothing to play, and when the advertisers are wasting money, that's when you start to see people joining in on these causes. They now have a share, a vested interest in this cause. It's in, and again, this is going to sound super crazy to some people, but it's the reason why at the core of a boycott, right, is I'm not going to this business, I'm going to hurt them financially so they have a vested interest in my cause. It's the same thing that works when people, for example, found out that Target was uh, giving money to the police out in, um, in Minnesota with the Floyd situation and they were telling their employees not to sell water and milk to protesters. Um, and people decided that they were going to tear that target up. And obviously it spread into something that was ridiculous. But the, the academic thought behind that, and I'm, I'm saying this because I don't condone it, but the academic thought behind tearing up a store is that it affects their business to the point where they have a vested interest now in ensuring their business never gets torn up again. So whether that is applying pressure to the departments that they support to make sure that they're not just out there killing people just to kill them or whatever it is. You see that it all comes down to a follow the money type of situation. The NBA players didn't stick to their guns, which I'm not going to say um, I'm disappointed, but I'm, I'm not overly hurt by that because those guys got, you know, families to feed and everything else too and contracts to uphold. So go ahead. But the WNBA I thought did a great job. Their players have been, um, really some of the most powerful voices. And it's, it's interesting because I think that um, women in leadership in 2020 are actually killing men in leadership. Again, I'll do that on a different podcast, a different day. Um, but they've done a, they've done a great job uh, with Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and some of the other folks um, that have been accosted this summer and ensuring that voices are being amplified and a 
pressure is being applied. And I truly wish that they had a bigger platform where people watch them because these women are, are really on the forefront of pushing for change. You saw the NHL had a response as well. The MLB, college football teams have protested. They've uh, organized on their different campuses to share the messages and amplify different voices. And then you see also that the NFL has joined in too with many teams taking days off during training camp to figure out what they're going to do. And specifically to the credit of the Baltimore Ravens, um, who put out a fantastic statement that not only uh, talked about what happened, but the specific action steps that people could take um, to ensure change in the future uh, in these topics. It was fantastic. So I wanted to talk about that. Um, every time I see something like that, it really breaks my heart. And, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the person who was shot, potentially killed, if you're George Floyd, who was uh, strangled for eight minutes and 46 seconds, regardless of what type of person they were, regardless of what type of trouble that they were in that day, it is not up to any one individual to be judge, jury, and executioner. I believe in the constitution that says that you have a right to due process. And so these people do not deserve to be killed. They deserve a day in court. And so every time I see something like this, it really, really, really blows me. Um, so for a college football update, um, we had a college football game actually over the weekend. Fantastic. FCS, Central Arkansas beat Austin P 24 to 17. This was a, a really interesting game. Got started off quick. First play from scrimmage actually ended up being a touchdown. So, um, you know, if your 2020 comes to an end, somebody will be able to say that they scored the first touchdown of the college football season on the first play from scrimmage of the 2020 college football season. So what a awesome point there, but backtracking earlier into the week, there was a ton of smoke that came out midweek about um, a potential October, um, November, excuse me, start date for college football. And it was a story that I think a lot of people ran with just because uh, folks really want to see that. And we're disappointed. We're looking for answers from the Big Ten Conference. Um, and uh, the reality of the situation is after talking to some of my insiders and, and folks who are in the know, that was a, a thought that was thrown out there. If we can start that weekend of Thanksgiving uh, with the Big Ten, we can get some games in. Maybe we'll have five or six in by the time the college football playoff committee goes to choose. If you're Ohio State and you're undefeated up to that point with wins over uh, Michigan, Penn State, Wisconsin, Minnesota, some of the, the heavier hitters in the conference, then you feel like you have a shot to make it into the college football playoff in a weird year. Um, those rumors kind of swirled around for a few days, even to the point where some people were suggesting an October start date, you know, October 3rd, maybe mid-October, um, even that Halloween weekend. And it's kind of been shut down from this point. It's looking like it's still going to be a January start date from the folks that I've spoken to um, that have some knowledge around the topic. And again, I think for the Big Ten to have a uh, reversal in their course at this point would be um, a really big upset. Kevin Warren has made it very, very clear where he stands on this and that he doesn't want a reversal. Um, I think for the Big Ten standpoint, what changes between now and November is probably less than what changes between now and January in terms of the state of the pandemic. Uh, so it'd be tough 
just from that regard. But I know a lot of people here in the Midwest, myself included, um, are really thirsty for some damn football at this point. Like we, we would literally just like, we want to see our big 10 teams play. Like that's all we want. Um, and so that's why there's so much energy behind some of these. Now the other big piece of news and this one becomes really, really interesting is uh, parents of eight Nebraska players filed a lawsuit against the big 10 conference. Um, and I'm very curious to see how this plays out. So essentially what it is, is they're looking for an injunction to say that the big 10 uh, made a decision based off of information that was either faulty or information that they won't release without transparency, et cetera. And that injunction would at least temporarily reverse the decision not to play football this fall and teams would be able to get back to practice and potentially play games before a decision is made. Um, now, I've spoken to a couple of legal experts, including my own personal attorney who works in sports and entertainment, has advised me for years about this topic. The injunction is legitimate uh, just from the standpoint of that can buy time to get the season started, at least for a temporary reversal, until some things are sorted out. Um, the things that become more difficult, though, is that when the players sign their letters of intent with their schools, that was an agreement between the university and between the player. It wasn't an agreement between the player, the university, and the Big Ten as a conference. So I think from that standpoint, there are going to be some difficulties for these players because they aren't really in an agreement with the Big Ten conference itself. The other thing that folks have been talking about, which I haven't really seen from players or parents, is this loss of value perspective. Um, in terms of lawsuits. And what I was told from my attorney about the loss of value standpoint is as long as the university honors a scholarship and makes an attempt to play this season at some point before next season, a legitimate attempt to play it, then there's really not a case for loss of value. And it's really hard to underwrite first off what that loss of value would be. But second off, the, the contract really is the scholarship. So these guys are all enrolled in school and their scholarships are honored. And then second off, attempting to play football games, which these universities have made clear they want to attempt. It's just a timeline that the parents don't like. Um, so anytime these things get legal, it gets a little bit funky. Things start to get a little bit messy. And then the other thing that I'm really curious about is these uh, Freedom of Information Act requests that have been put in by Tom Mars, the attorney uh, who has been the champion of college football players and their voices as of late. Um, he's searching for all kinds of information, really to figure out, number one, what the medical data was that was used to make the decision on a cancellation. And number two, um, the vote that the Big Ten presidents may or may not have taken, if that comes to light at all, it would be every, uh, very interesting. Um, just one more point on that uh, lawsuit that the Nebraska players filed. Um, a spokesperson from the conference said that it would be very damaging for some of the information to be released based off of a lawsuit from eight players. And I kind of want to throw out my conspiracy on that information that could be damaging is I think number one, some of the medical information that was used was like firsthand information from players that were on some of these campuses. And so I am, I'm thinking that some of these university presidents and athletic departments are afraid that if some of this information comes out, they could look like they were at least uh, negligent in their handling of summer workouts where we saw multiple universities, um, Ohio State sent players into 
quarantine. I did suspend workouts. Michigan State did the same thing we saw out of uh, Rutgers, which had a, a massive outbreak of like 30 on their team out of 100 people. Um, so I think that's part of it. The other part of it, and I, I think this needs to have a little bit more attention called to it because people in Big Ten country are killing Kevin Warren. And, you know, if that's your prerogative, absolutely, because I do think that there have been things that he's mishandled on this. But we have 14 university presidents in the Big Ten. 13 of them are state employees, and they're some of the highest paid state employees um, in their respective states. And these folks have been, for the most part, kind of flying under the radar in their role in this. And it could come out eventually that there was a legitimate vote taken and, and it could have been an overwhelming consensus not to play college football in the Big Ten. I'm speculating here. I don't know this to be true. Uh, but if that's the case, there, there are going to be a lot of people that get fired. And I think part of the lack of transparency is truly that Kevin Warren was, um, was selected for the role of the Big Ten commissioner based off of recommendations from some of these university presidents. And so part of his duty whether that's a, a written job description or something he feels he needs to do is to protect these university presidents uh, and protect their jobs, really, so these folks don't get fired because some people get pissed off. But um, that'll be a developing story that we will definitely follow. So there's your college football update. Um, and then I got some good news for everybody. Obviously, we started the show bogged down with some terrible stuff. Um, but I wanted to spread some good news. And this is actually a story from the state of Ohio Tyler and Melanie, and I'm going to butcher the last name, so uh, apologies there. Tapaj, Tapajna, apologies there, of Parma, Ohio. Um, they were getting married, and it's a weird time to be getting married. I am planning a wedding or something of the sort uh, during these COVID times, and so you can't have gatherings, and if you do, it's supposed to be distance and masks and the whole deal. And they didn't want to have a COVID wedding that was going to have a ton of restrictions. They had a contract with the caterer. They decided that instead of asking for the money back, they were actually going to cancel their formal reception and then spend that money to feed women and children at the Laura's House charity in Cleveland. That is a huge deal. So um, folks, I've talked about this, I think the last two weeks. So I'll mention this for a third time. I have a charity of my own, the Joshua Perry Family Foundation. We work with kindergarten through eighth graders primarily, although we do work with high schoolers throughout the central Ohio area. Um, the One of the things that I was really, really worried about with some of the kids that I personally do charity work with is their ability to be fed during this COVID-19 pandemic. Um, with school closures, what you saw was some kids that were in food deserts, some kids that lacked food security at home, um, and parents that were potentially their jobs were on the chopping block and their ability to get food uh, through financial means was going to diminish. Um, and the schools did a really good job. They had food pickup uh, stations throughout the cities and, and people were able to go and get their meals. And believe it or not, there are some kids that their only meals of the day are free breakfast and lunch at school. Um, but summertime, it's a little bit dicey and it gets that way for a lot of kids. So to see the fact that um, they were feeding not only women who are in this shelter that need the type of outreach that they're giving, which is a fantastic thing, but also there were children that benefited from this and a lot of them who probably um, were struggling throughout the summer to make sure that they had nutritious meals. Um, 
it warms my heart. And so in a time where I feel like everybody's really combative and we've had all the negative, right? This whole damn year, it's been COVID and then we've had the college football thing that I was talking about. And then we, you know, George Floyd and Breonna Taylor. And now we have what's going on in Kenosha, which is crazy. Um, and then to kind of tie it all together, we get tropical storms and hurricanes, which are no joke. And then it's an election year. So of course people are at each other's necks. Um, I think it is really awesome to see this type of news. So that wraps it up for the first portion of this podcast. Now we're getting ready to dive into a fantastic interview with one of my favorite people, Urban Meyer. He was my coach at The Ohio State University, coached me to a national championship, and really along the way taught me a ton about how to develop an organization and what it means to be a leader. Um, guy who has been very, very impactful and a guy who is super candid in this interview as well. Um, I hope you all enjoy. Stay tuned. All right, and on the who's who of the Joshua Perry Show, we have probably our biggest guest to date, somebody who I have just a ton of respect for, has had a huge impact on my life, probably wouldn't be here doing all the cool things I'm doing without him. Three-time national championship winning coach, current Fox Sports and Big Ten Network analyst, Urban Meyer, one of my favorite people. Welcome to the Joshua Perry Show. I can't tell you how great it is to be with you, Josh. Awesome. Now, I'm looking forward to this interview. Uh, let's start with some of the obvious news. Uh, currently in college football, Big Ten, Pac-12 cancellation. What do you make of the situation? Well, I'm a big believer. Everybody's responsible for personal, their personal responsibility, their personal behavior. If you make a mistake, uh, we've had some players and some people make some mistakes and they're held accountable. Uh, but I also believe if, you do, if you've done everything right, that it's hard for me to accept the fact that you're not playing or you're not doing something you love. And I get, I get the whole both sides of the story. I am just heartbroken, devastated, because I'm not sure the average person, uh, or, or I shouldn't say average person, the average fan or the media person really understand. You know, football, they see number 37, number 11, number five, number one, Justin Fields. They see these kids come out there and perform. And then it's a little bit like when, you, when you're a doctor or you, you're, you're some high-end pro, uh, profession that just takes inordinate amount of time. When I say inordinate, you're working – I did the study one year for every minute of football is 70 hours or some crazy number for every minute of actual football. And uh, it very rarely in, in life do you get the perfect storm, I call it, and that, that is high-end people and high-end talent. You know, a lot of times you just don't quite know. You know, I've done that for 35 years, and you have 35 teams that have been a part of that. Yeah, sure you do, but then sometimes you have some issues. Uh, this team, this team was built, uh, and it, it really became high-end in all areas. And that's, I think, one of the toughest things, like you said, is these guys came back to campus. They did their protocols. They were doing everything right, and, and the numbers were supporting it. Gene Smith and the athletic directors all across the Big Ten were letting everybody know how everything was working, and we got to a point where we had a schedule, and it all just evaporated. And I think that's the biggest thing if, if you're a fan that's tough to swallow but imagine as a player in that locker room as a coach you know all the time that you spend away from your family and and all the time that you have during the summer to maybe get out of town that you would say no I'm going to be there around my team because we're getting ready for a season where you know you can win a championship it's so tough and obviously now Ryan Day has some new obstacles in terms of how he communicates with parents how he communicates with the student athletes and how he communicates on the recruiting trail if you're him, how do you attack that obstacle? 
Well, and I just, I, ironically, I just talked to Ryan and I, and I think that, and it's really hard to do, focus on the moment. Yeah, there are some big picture issues right now, but here's, here's reality. Reality is number one, the most important people, always. I would always tell presidents and ADs this, I really don't work for you. I work for the families of the student athletes. There's no profession anywhere like what college coaches do. They go into your home. They hug your mom, hug your dad. And I've done it on both ends as a coach and as a parent. And I'm going to give you my kid. And I expect you to fight as hard as you can for that kid. If not, you're going to have a problem that you don't want to have a problem because that's people's children. So it's a very raw emotion. So number one is the reality is that these players are hurting. Keep that in mind. The heck with commissioners and ADs, coach. The players are the ones. Their shelf life is that big. They only have, Josh, you played for three or four years. That's it. It's over. You can't go back. Coaches coaches go on, ADs go on, commissioners, honestly, who cares? You know, that's they, they got a long shelf life. They can do whatever they want to do. Their, their, their time in the sun is, is over. It's the opportunity for the players. That's number one. Number two is the fiscal reality of what's about to hit. And that is not by design. Football players shouldn't have to support every other sport. Football players shouldn't have to support all these incredible salaries and facilities. You know, there's a brand new tennis facility going up. There's this going up, all kinds of great things. And I had a player ask me that one time. Well, Reggie Bush actually said that. So why do we have to put ourselves in harm way for that, that other stuff? I can't answer that. However, that's what's going on. So those are the two things to keep in mind. Number one, and by far the most important, is the student athlete is hurting right now. What plan do we have for them? Number two, the fiscal reality that you're going to drop sports, which I'm very – talk about raw emotion. I told you a second ago, my oldest daughter played volleyball at Georgia Tech. She's a president of a company. And she'd be the first to tell you the reason she is so good at her job is she understands teams. She understands diversity. She understands selflessness and putting something ahead of self. Where else do you learn that? Do you learn that in your, your psychology class in college? Maybe you do. I don't, I don't know. <laughs> I, I never did. Uh, and then my other daughter, second daughter, owns her own company. She's a volleyball player, a national champion, a wakeboarder at Florida Gulf Coast. So they understand, and they'd be the first to say that I learned from team. And I, I'm horrified about that, Josh. Yeah, and I was going to say that's a huge impact, just talking about the athletes. Like you said, I, I think that there are experiences that I had at Ohio State I wouldn't have had anywhere else. And we'll, we'll talk about those later on in the show. But sports puts you – in situations that are adverse and it forces you to work a lot of times with people that you don't always like and you don't always get along with and so the athletes get that in terms of the skills that they can build for their careers and socialization and everything else but when you're talking about mental health for these athletes who are now going to be outside of their structure and their normal routine uh, when you talk about like you said the shelf life of a football player I played four years at Ohio State I played three years in the league and now I'm done wasn't a long time to play. There are going to be so many implications by canceling, postponing, whatever you want to call it, fall sports that I, I don't I don't know what the, the ramifications will be, but some of these athletes are going to be struggling in a bad way. And you go back to what how do people handle that? You know, there, there's the above the line, you know, I don't want to get too deep on my book, you know, <laughs> above the line, below the line. Above the line it was intention with purpose. And that means your faith, that means your family, that means you know, that, that ship has sailed. Okay, now focus on my academics or train hard. That's above the line. You know, you are dealt any uh, a terrible event just happened. What do you do? Press pause. Calm down. Okay, now what do I do if I'm an elite athlete? I train like an animal for the NFL. I work so hard. 
I, I hire the right people around me and I get ready to go. That's above the line. If I'm a returning player, I just work really hard, do great in school, et cetera, et cetera. Below the line, you know, I'm going to start drinking. I'm going to start, you know, maybe hanging out with people that are also in, in bad places. And, and unfortunately, the, the separation between two is at times catastrophic. You've seen it. I've seen it. It break, my heart's still broken over some things that I saw that I, I can't believe that individual made that decision to do that. But once again, we're all held accountable. But there's above the line, below the line. We have dealt – you've been trained for five years on that, Josh, and so is our program, that press pause. Okay, this happened. What's the best thing to do? And don't – impulsive behavior is not good by anybody. You know, take your time and think the thing through. No, and that's, that's going to be a tough thing, though. Like, we train it all the time, and, and I'm, I'm very thankful from coming from one of those environments. But I'm thinking about some of the guys from other schools that maybe haven't had that same training, some people that are newer in the program that haven't maybe broken some of their old habits, which, you know, it's, it's really hard to break some of those habits sometimes. It's going to be definitely difficult. But transitioning, thinking about a uh, potential spring season, I know that you don't like it. I think it's a terrible idea. Um, why, why are you opposed to a spring season? Oh, all about, I think, you know, the answer, number one, is a player. You know, it's the, you start with the player and you end with the player. Are you really willing to put someone in, in a, a two calendar, two seasons in a calendar year? I, I don't think that's going to happen. That, first of all, job, I mean, that's not going to happen. No, it can't happen. You know, you start talking about April, May, or, you know, that's not. What I, I, I saw someone come up with something, and you're, that's, first of all, no one will allow that to happen. I'm telling you right now, my son's playing college football. They told me he's out. He's not playing college football. I'm not putting that kid in harm's way like that. You know, you don't do that. However, the January-February model that Ryan Day is, and Gene Smith and some of the Big Ten is looking at, it's going to give some of these players an opportunity. You know, I look at a Justin Hilliard who has earned the right to go play professional football. He's, I love that man. He's as, you know how we all feel about that kid. He's earned that right. If a six-game season, eight-game season will help him get film on the tape, get something on tape to get him in the NFL, go do it. Uh, but the further you move it back, you're going to have to adjust the fall because you can't ask players. You just can't. Your body needs to heal. And football, that's why in spring practice, guys that played, like, you know that, guys that started a bunch of games, we you weren't scrimmaging. You weren't, you know, we practiced three, four days a week, and I would pull those guys out. Remember the 1,000-rep club and 2,000-rep club? 2,000-rep club, you didn't yeah. practice. You know, you, you did shorts and, yep. you, know, what, you know, you just can't put your head, neck, and shoulder areas in those kind of – conflict yeah and I remember that was a big thing actually after the uh, 2014 season because we ended up playing in so many games our guys are veteran guys in the spring they they were out there obviously getting the work and we were doing the individual drills and all the fundamental stuff but when it came to the high velocity high contact scrimmage reps you guys were smart enough and you pulled back and that's the other thing that I worry about absolutely when you start getting late into that spring end of the semester April May territory it's going to be really tough to ask those guys to turn back around and play some more football. Um, all right, let's, let's start hitting a little bit of a different topic. So we'll talk about your coaching career a little bit, the illustrious coaching career. So you're a baseball guy, played some baseball back in the day, also played football at Cincinnati. So you had a couple of different options and where to go career-wise, and you decided that you wanted to take it, um, and for a number of reasons, invest it into the football side. When you were done with your football playing career, you decided to get into coaching. Why did you want to be a coach? 
I knew at a very young age. Uh, my dad would used to tell a story. He was about seven or eight years old, and, and we were walking at, ironically, University of Cincinnati football game. He was graduate, and I just be we were walking right along. They had a track around the field, and I, and I still somewhat remember it. There was a defense coordinator. Uh, I later found out who that was. A fa- ended up being a famous coach, but uh, he had a chalkboard out, and he's, and I just was mesmerized with the the players all sitting around this coach and the strategy and motivation and all the things that were going on. And I remember I, my dad tells the story. He said, "I want to do." I looked at him and said, "I want to do that someday." And he's like, "Wow!" And I wanted to play as long as I could. I was better at baseball than football, and I was drafted, and so I signed and played a couple of years. Had a couple of injuries I was dealing with, and. And uh, also, they quit letting me hit with uh, aluminum bats, and I had to use a wooden bat. So that that career, uh, I played two years there. Then I went and played college football. Um, probably went a little higher. I should have been a little lower level, uh, but I wanted to go to Cincinnati because that's where my dad went. And I went there, and then I started a, a coaching career that I knew. You know, I, I was studying Bobby Bowden, Joe Paterno, Bo Schembecker, Woody Hayes, and Tom Osborne. I would read books, and, and I, I don't know if this generation does, but we used to have football codes, cards. Everyone had the football and baseball cards in my generation. I actually would read articles on these coaches, and, and it was kind of, you know, I look back now and say not many people were doing that, but I was, I was enamored by leadership. I was enamored by uh, culture and the human spirit. I just, I thought these coaches, Tom Osborne was a guy that really struck me, and I would, take these articles and I would pin them up against my wall. And, uh, and it was back. How about this, Josh? Tom Osborne was the pioneer of weight training before Tom Osborne. Not many people know this, but I, I did. And, and I just, because I studied it. And so I was just enamored by it. No, it's, it's really fascinating. I feel like that mentality is common among people who become elite at what they do is they study the best and they become obsessed with the traits and the things that the, best in their industry have done. And so that kind of leads into my next question. You know, you're, you're early on in a coaching career as a head coach, but you're gaining a ton of success. You're winning coach of the year awards. You're winning national championships. All of that is hard to sustain. What was the thing that probably drove you the most? I hate to say it after you started winning, I, I did it for the love of the game and I did it for the love of player and, and making an impact in people's life. When I first got in in 2001 as a head coach, I, you know, I made a hundred grand. It, there wasn't, I'm not saying that's, that's very good money, but relative to what's going on now and for the time you put into something, you know, we, we were somewhat survival mode, raising three children and all the things that I had to do. And so it had nothing to do with the uh, financial rewards. It's just the fact that you would beat your opponent. And then I went to Utah and, and that was probably the most fun I've ever had. You know, we were so good. We were doing things offensively. And, you know, I, it, during a game, you'd almost smile because you'd be like, these people have no idea how to stop this. And we had a great quarterback, Alex Smith. And then we go to Florida and things got real serious. You know, you, you start stepping in the, the swamp and, and the SEC and we won the national championship in 06. And I remember, you know, probably an hour and a half after it all ended. Did you remember that? All the confetti's done and, celebrate and dance in the locker room and all that. And you sit back and I said, go get my father and go get Earl Bruce, my mentor. And we went and sat way in the bowels of the stadium, deep in the stadium. And I looked at my dad and I said, you know, I can't believe this happened. And from this point forward, I'm, I'm playing on house money. That means I'm just doing this for fun. And because you can never take that championship away from us. What happened, Josh, everything became a national championship. Recruiting, um, 
if we lost a, a player in recruiting, I lost my mind. You can imagine, you know, you know me pretty well. We, God forbid, if we lost a game, we lost a couple, not many, but it was like the world came to an end. And so everything became, and it was taking time from two things that, in my mind, you can't, they're constants, that you, as you grow up and get married and have a family, number one is your faith, number two is your family. You can't, you just can't. And I was cutting deep into those. And it was, it was impacting me in a, in a really bad way. Cause I, I felt it. I felt I was becoming that guy that I hated the guy that the old guy that sits, maybe made some money, maybe has a couple trophies, but he missed his kids grow up. He missed that relationship with his kids. Maybe his, you know, his wife and, you know, and we, we, I had no issues with that, but I just felt like I was not doing my job as a husband and a father. No. And I, I think it's big that you talk about that experience and I, and you obviously learned from that too, because when you got to Ohio state, I feel like it was as family friendly all around as it could get. Like you welcome parents into practices and you had the coaches families there. And obviously we spent a ton of time around your family. I know all of your kids. I know your wife, your wife really, really well. Um, and, and I can appreciate somebody obviously where, you know, you're at the top and you have to take a step back and evaluate because it's, it's so easy to get hyper-focused on just having that success and not paying attention to the other things that are really important in life too. Um, I want to talk about your time at OSU. So one of my favorite stories to tell, uh, the first conversation I ever had with you when you told me I wasn't good enough to play at Ohio State. I got to tell you. That's not the first conversation. It's absolutely the first conversation that we had, Coach. The first conversation on campus that we had, you said. In a, in a hallway by the uh, meeting room there? That's, that's exactly where it was. Wow. And, and, but that was – I think that was your mentality and approach, though. And I've heard you talk about it before. When you got to Ohio State, you, you had an expectation of one thing, and you walked into something different. And you, you then became obsessed with attacking that job and bringing it back and making it the place that you, you had seen when you were there, the place that you wanted it to be. What was that experience like? I came from the SEC, and, and football is very important. And it, it might be sound funny to say that, but football is very important in the SEC. I mean, it's a way of life. It's a religion, and it, it is. And they don't apologize for that. I came to the Big Ten, and I had no, you know, I had this vision of Ohio State because, you know, Ohio State, the Big Ten, used to be the, the strongest conference. And I got there, and I saw antiquated facilities. I saw lack of creativity. I quite honestly saw a roster that wasn't good enough. I saw recruiting that was not at the level that you need to go win at that level. I saw, I watched all the film and I cringed a little bit to be quite honest with you about the lack of speed and lack of athleticism at the positions, especially like D line. And, and even Shelly, who, you know, she knows football. She goes, How in the world are you going to beat the sec? You know, it's, you know, it's not going to happen. And I know you, when she looked at me, she goes, I know you, you'll, that'll drive you insane. And I said, well, we're going to do it. You watch. And I challenged the Big Ten. I challenged the coaches. You know, with some people, once again, and the feelings have not been that important to me in, in professional business. You know, it's, it's, I told you who I work for. I work for the players. I want Josh Perry to look back and say that was, a, I didn't say easy, but the most gratifying, rewarding four years of my life. And there's really only one way to place like Ohio State. Yes, great education, great teammates. The horseshoe is incredible, but you better win. Because look, look at all the, programs who comes back you know Josh Perry will always be welcome back with his family and show pictures that was my dream I always want the players to come back and say look what your father did 
the play, players that lose, they never come back. So I wanted to make that. And so we just challenged everybody. I challenged myself, Gene Smith. I challenged, you know, we, we were able to hire some great coaches, assistant coaches, our recruiting went, uh, you know, the real life Wednesday component just made us be able to go recruit anyone in the country. And you start going into Georgia and some of the talent areas where because of the population shift, there is a little more talent and you start bringing that to Ohio, you have what you have now. And that's one of the top two or three programs in America. No doubt. And you talk about that challenge. Like I want people to understand when coach is saying that we challenge each other, what he means is he's standing up in the front of the meeting room and he's calling you out based off of what's on tape that everybody can see. And he is telling you that either you're going to correct what you're doing wrong on tape or you're not going to. And if you don't, then you're not invested in the team. And it wasn't just players. He was doing the same thing with coaches. It's like, Hey, you know, if your player is playing that type of technique and that's not what we teach as a coach, you either fix that or you're not coaching how we want you to coach here. And being in a crucible like that every day where you go in and you know that everything is going to be scrutinized, like you said, it's not the most, you know, easy experience you ever had. It's not about that, though. It's, it's how can we mold people and, and get the results that we want so people, when they come back 20 years from now, they can say that those were the best years of my life because I, I was, we were elite and we did everything we needed to do. Um, so Kerry Combs, Kerry Combs one time, Josh, you'll appreciate this. And obviously I think Kerry's as good as I've ever been around. And he said, you know, we were having our year end evaluation and I go through it. And I, you know, I had a very honest conversation with every coach and he said, you know, these hard conversations are really good. And I go, Kerry, what do you mean hard conversation? And he, he looks at me, I go, you mean like honest, like we're, having an honest, so honest conversations, you're not used to these are, are, you know, I guess I grew up in a household with my father and, and just, you know, it cracks me up today that I hear that all the time. I said, boy, those are hard conversations. And I'm like, hard, hard. I, it's an injustice to you. If I, if Josh Perry were to walk down the hallway and I said, Josh, that's, you're one of the finest football players I've ever seen in high school. And you, you'd be the first guy I'd offer at Ohio state. If I, First of all, I'm lying to you. Second of all, if I'm you, I've lost all confidence in me as a coach because deep down you know the truth. You were nowhere near you. You had God gave you an incredible mind, heart, yet you weren't you weren't there yet. And so it was my job to say, okay, there is greatness in Josh Perry. Let's go find it. But for God's sakes, be honest. I mean, you know, it doesn't mean I don't love you. It doesn't mean, a matter of fact, it means I love you more. It's no different than you raise a child. If your kid's screwing around, you know, hey man, that's okay. It's not okay. We got to fix it because you have a long life ahead of you. And that's the deal too. Like you, you said that confidence aspect and um, that's, that's built over time within a team. But if I lie to you, then you, you're not going to trust me. You don't have confidence in me anymore. And that's the most damaging thing that can happen within a team is you lose that feedback channel of confidence and trust. Now everybody's kind of looking around for answers. Um, So Obviously, you talked a little bit about the recruiting. You were the recruiting king. Like You were the guy. You said it. You changed the Big Ten and the mentality of how you recruit the type of players you want to bring in, the budget that you use to recruit those kind of players. And so everywhere you went, you had legit guys. But it wasn't just about chasing five stars. You were looking at a specific personality type of a guy as well. On the recruiting trail, how were you able to kind of figure out these guys' personalities without having – as much contact with them as, as you might have had in a different scenario? What a great question. This is, this is where I grew. Uh, Bill Belichick became a dear friend and 
he would come down to me in Florida. And by the second year, I knew we would sit for four hours, five hours. And he would go through every player, not just the high draft picks, but free agents. And when he had a set criteria that he looked for, and by the time, you know, once I knew him very well, I, I knew who – I had it all done for him because I knew what he was looking for. And I was like, wait a minute, in recruiting, do I have set criteria? I don't. You know, I just – I listen to my coaches. If you have great athleticism, you run fast, you, you know, we'll take you. And that changed my last half of Florida. And then here we had set criteria. And the criteria are this, number one, competitive spirit. Are you an elite, elite competitor? Number two, are you tough? I mean, this is a tough man's game. Are you a tough guy? And there's a way I can go through the analytics and how you find all that stuff out. Number three, are you a leader? Can you elevate yourself and elevate others in difficult times? Number four, are you intelligent? This is a complex game. I'm not, I didn't say you need to be a 4.0, but you have to have the cognitive ability to maneuver this complicated game. And number five, are you adaptable? What makes Patrick Mahomes and some of these great, great players and coaches Elite is the ability to adapt to any situation, to any person. And those are the five qualities I look for. And if you, I had those in Sharpie above our board. If you're coaching for me, Josh, you'd come in and say, I want to recruit Josh Perry. Does Josh fit these five criteria? What's ironic is Joe Burrow, you know, he, I know he, he went on and had a great career, but we, Joe Burrow was not, not recruited, yet he fit all five criteria. So we took him. Uh, you take a, a Zeke Elliott, who wasn't a great, you know, he was a really good high school player, but he fit the criteria. JT Barrett, Josh Perry, we would have recruited you because you fit those five criteria. So we got better. Uh, and in the big picture, the amount of recruiting mistakes we made, relatively none, because we fit that, we, we had players fit that criteria. No, and I know at Ohio State, um, there's, there's obviously going to be roster turnover and guys are going to transfer, especially when it's highly competitive and somebody wants to play. But the one thing that we really didn't have, which I, I felt like was a point of pride when I talked about my teams, were the guys that were getting kicked out of school because of academic issues or social issues or whatever it was. And it really does go back to that personality type and bringing in those guys um, that you know are going to fit the culture of what you're trying to build. So that's really, really good insight there. Um, Someone asked me, Josh, real quick about – you know, character and those type of things. And I, I put that all under competitor. Mm -hmm. So if you're, if you're an elite competitor, that means you do have to be strong academically. That means you do, you can't be a drug, you know, uh, addicted to, or just a social uh, misfit or dysfunctionally that you, you just can't take care of yourself. Cause the elite competitors understand for me to compete at my very best on Saturday, I have to do Monday through Saturday. Yep. And I'm not saying we we're perfect because no one's perfect, but all the, I, the competitive spirit to me handles a lot of those questions. No, I think the leadership category does as well, because, you know, right. that's, that's how you end up at a place where you have seven captains a year at Ohio State is you have so many elite leaders on your team that you can't you can't pick three or four guys because you have seven of them that fit the bill and that are, are really well respected. That's a great point. I, never, I mean, you're you're. You hit that right on. I'm going to use that from now on. You're exactly right. So uh, this will be an interesting question. How, how much did recruiting kids in 2001 change versus recruiting kids in 2018? Oh, much different. The social media craze and, uh, you know, how early it happened. I'm not a fan of it, to be honest with you, Josh. I did it. 
you know, I, I believe a head coach should watch uh, someone play their senior year in high school. And I believe a player should decide, not be forced to make decisions or sophomore year. Because what, what happens if, uh, I'm trying to think, you get a, a player like a Joe Burrow. Joe Burrow, if, if ever all recruiting was done like it is now, Joe Burrow would never got a scholarship at Ohio State. You know, we had to go watch him. And, and so I, I just worry about everybody's pushing the envelope out recruiting earlier and earlier. And football is a developmental sport. Uh, I worry about, you know, I, I just I can't stand the, uh, the how, how we treat these junior and high schools where, you know, I have people, there's TV people saying, well, I think he's going to be a high draft pick. He's a, you know, what are you talking about? You know, and the kid hears that. Right. And, and the family hears that. And then all of a sudden you get this enormous pressure put on this darn kid that's a sophomore in high school that you know, I can, you know, the family said, hey, he's going to be able to take care of us because he's going to be a multi-million dollar athlete. But that's not fair. So I think the, the air is out of that balloon. I don't see that going backwards. Uh, to say I'm a fan of it, I'm not. Um, all right, let's jump on 2014 real quick. That was a unique year, obviously. Very, very special team. If you could sum up what made that team special, what do you think it was? It was relentless. They, they were uh, – that was the hardest working team I've ever been around. Hardest working team. Andrew had a couple people that I still to this day give so much credit to, and that was darn Curtis Grant, man. Yeah. I mean, Curtis Grant was a guy that I was ready to have him walk out of the program. As a matter of fact, I, Luke Fickle and I both encouraged him. to. It was time to move on. Mm-hmm. And Evan Spencer. Evan yep. Spencer is a guy that I saw him the other day, and I, I, I want to hug the kid every time I see him because he put everything ahead of self, and so did Curtis Grant. If you remember, Curtis Grant took a kid like Raekwon McMillan, who was the number one linebacker in America, and mentored him mentored him so well that he would play at times in front of him. Yep. How do you, in today's society, think about that for a minute. That's why I'm forever, we all are forever indebted to players like Curtis Grant and Evan Spencer. You have the Josh Perry's and you have the Zeke Elliott's and he's incredible, who were great leaders too. But those two really stuck out to me that it was the epitome of selflessness, which as we called, you know, that was the term we used throughout the year, solve the mystery. Yep. And the mystery is how do you put something ahead of self? And I, I'll say for Curtis Grant, I, I don't think I've ever been around a player that had more of an impact on my career than Curtis did because I, I watched all of the up and down that Curtis had. Um, but, you know, when he decided he was going to be all in on his senior year at Ohio State, you know, he was, he was bringing me along everywhere with him. We were doing film studies on Mondays. You know, we were in there for two hours breaking down tape and he would bring Raekwon in and we would do all those things. And throughout the week we had a routine and we did everything together. And it was, you know, Mike linebacker and Will linebacker, the way it's supposed to be. And we, we were, we communicated off the field and we communicated on the field. Um, And just to watch somebody who had to overcome and had a lot of disappointment in their career, have that same mentality to just finish it off the right way. I don't think a lot of people would be able to do that. Like you said, especially knowing a cat like Raekwon is coming for his job and he's still bringing him along too. It's, it was a very special thing. I think it was just a really special team. Um, uh, one of those teams that you, I don't know if you'll really see many like that again. You take your third string quarterback, absolutely illogical. Yet that team, did Cardell change? You know, here's, this is really interesting. Cardell changed. And, and he'd be the first to tell you, did he change because of the NFL contract? No. Did he change for his love for Ohio State? No. Did he change for his coach? No. 
he changed for the ultimate transformational uh, piece of your life, and that's for the brotherhood. That's for love and ownership. It became his team. And he even told me with tears rolling down his head, face uh, the Monday or the, the day after the game, I, I was like, man, what happened? I mean, here's a guy that had some issues, always been a good guy, but just had issues. And he said, I could not let my teammates down. And I, I, to this day, I just get, isn't that the fundamental of waking up in the morning? If Imagine how this country, this country has got a lot of bad stuff going on. Mm-hmm. Imagine if that somehow permeated through our country that I could not let my brother down. I mean, problem solved. Yeah. No, I mean, that, that was our, literally our whole mentality is like you get it. It, it sucks getting up every day at, at 5.30 a.m. And, and going to workouts and then going to class and coming back. And, you know, Coach, you're in, you're in the facility all daggone day long. And you don't do that for yourself. You do that because you have a lot of people depending on you and you want to make them proud and you want to be successful and elite with them. Uh, so I, it's 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 really good point there. Um, your last year at Ohio State, and we've talked about it a little bit, it was obviously bittersweet, but you had – to, uh, the opportunity to end your career at Ohio State with a victory in the Rose Bowl. And that was a game that I never played in, but as a Big Ten fan, I always had a ton of reverence and, and love for watching the Rose Bowl. Um, how did it feel ending your career with the win in that game? Well, I got hired in 2000, December 2011 um, after taking a year off from Florida, and I was set to just take some time off. And football is such a grind, and I wanted my daughters were involved in volleyball, and I wanted to you know, just do a good job uh, as a father. And so Ohio State, I prayed on it. Uh, the job came open. It was the only job I would have taken. Gene Smith, the way we handled it is, hey, we lost seven games for the first time since the 1800s. We are on probation. We have these issues going on. We need your help. And I looked at Shelly, and she was opposed to it. I said, I'm going to go do this. And she's like, she didn't want me to. And uh, it's one of the few arguments I ever won. And And we went on that journey. And so um, I, I remember standing in the press conference saying that, you know, this is personal. This is, I'm from near Cleveland, Ohio. I had the greatest childhood. I have the greatest high school coaches. I love the Buckeyes since I could say the word Buckeye and uh, the school spirit, the Columbus, Ohio. And, and I said, you know, I'm going to swing as hard as I can. And then I'm not going to do this till I'm seven years old. I've had some health things. I've got cysts that I dealt with. And, yeah. and so I, Bob Stoops kind of said it set the precedent when he found the right guy he, he kind of made the same decision he wanted to retire at a young age go enjoy his life and his family and give back and I, I kind of went on a journey I'm going to find this right guy and I found him Ryan Day I hired him I didn't really know him when I hired him if you look at Ryan Day Ryan Day you know got fired his last two jobs he got fired at the Eagles and fired at the 49ers and I knew he was great though but when he got in I realized he was elite in everything so the season, obviously, we had that. Uh, I had the issue at the beginning with the suspension, <clears throat> and then uh, we had a tough injury. Nick Bosa went down, our best player, our toughest guy. We had a horrible loss. We weren't playing well on defense, but we scrapped and fought and went thirteen and one. And as a player or a coach, I'd never been to the Rose Bowl. I dreamed of it. I uh, I came so close so many times to go in the Rose Bowl, and to go out there, it was even better than I dreamed it to be, especially. You know, if we lost that darn game, I wouldn't say that. But we won the game and handed the team off in in great shape to uh, Ryan Day. Uh, That's a a really special end to your career, too. And and knowing the guy that you're going to hand the team off to and knowing it's in good hands probably had to be a great feeling. Um, I have to ask this question. 
Do you ever get the itch to coach? All the time. Yeah, all the time. And uh, I don't see it happening, but all the time. And, you know, I, and then it, it doesn't last as long as it did right when I stopped. You know, I still get the competitive. I, I can't watch games like a normal person. I just, I, I, I'm always, how would I do this situation? Yep. The good thing is I have so many colleagues that I'm constantly in conversation about, you know, Ryan Day and I talk every day. Uh, I, I just had breakfast with the basketball coach, Chris Holtman. And so I, I'm, it's an opportunity to get back in a different way. But, yeah, I have the itch. But once again, I don't, not, not to the point where I think I'm going to go do it again. So uh, talking about being connected to the game and everything, you've got job doing a, a great job as a college football analyst. Um, how are you liking that role? I know you did it one time before the last time you retired, but you're killing it right now. Yeah, I, I was scared. I wasn't going to enjoy it, and I can't, I'm not retired. I'm as busy as I've ever been. But, <laughs> uh, you know, people laugh. You're sitting around a lot. No, I don't sit around at all. But Fox is incredible. Big Ten Network's incredible. Uh, they take the approach, in which I wanted, is to, if you want to really learn football, to come watch us. Because you have Reggie Bush, you have Matt Leiner, Brady Quinn, Rob Stone, myself, people that are still somewhat relevant in the game that, you know, they haven't been out of it forever. A uh, very diverse group. Uh, you know, I have the West Coast, Notre Dame, Ohio State. Uh, but they, they give me the opportunity to teach the game that I love and I know. And not just the X and O's, but the recruiting the – human spirit, the motivation, inspiration involved in, in getting athletes to do some really tough things. So I actually really, really enjoy it. No, I can see um, the interest in it because like I'll, I'll look and you get that look in your eyes too when you're, when you're, you know, doing studio for one of the big games, like you're, you're breaking it down and you're intense and you're really taking it all in. And I can see also with the preparation and the delivery, how much effort that you put into what you're doing. And I have no expectation that you would do it any other way. That's just how you are. But it's really cool to see how um, you've really taken that competitive spirit that you've talked a lot about and you've put it into this new role because easily uh, one of the most fun people to watch in the industry. So I'm going to end it off with this two-minute drill. I do this with all the interviews, but it's a rapid fire of questions. Just got a handful of questions for you. I want you to answer them without really thinking about the answer. How's that sound? In. All right. So I'll start off with the first one. What's your dream vacation? Sarasota, Florida. Sarasota, Florida. Surf or turf? Uh, ooh, surf. Uh, if you had one superpower, what would it be? Uh, man. Uh, incredible strength. Okay. Who is the best player you've ever coached against? Against, uh, got it. Uh, let me think. Let me think. Let me think. Let me think. You got me there. Um, I think uh, uh, Julio Jones. Julio Jones. That's a hell of an answer. Um, what's the best advice you've ever gotten? The best advice I ever got is you know my father, and it's just there's no gray area. There's right and wrong, and do right. Uh, what is your biggest pet peeve? Pet peeve is uh, narrative. You know, uh, that's a pet peeve of mine. Is that, that's a, an expected answer from you. I, I'm 100% on board with that. And then finally, if they were making a movie about your life, who plays Urban Meyer? Kevin Costner. 
Okay. I just All love right. Derek Coster. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> that was the quickest answer you had. You had that one lined up, Coach. Yeah, for love of the, it's a great movie. I highly recommend it for love of the game. My son and I watch it all the time. We've probably seen it 30 times. He's an old retired pitcher, so go watch it someday. Fantastic. Well, Coach, I appreciate you joining us on the Joshua Perry Show. It's always great to catch up with you. Um, the insight from this conversation, I feel like, is going to be really impactful. Like, there were some great nuggets about, you know, building a team and, and how to eliminate the gray area in your life and being a good father and husband and everything else. So I appreciate you spending some time. Love and respect, my man. Love you, too. All right, and that was a great interview from the all-star coach, Urban Meyer. Um, and what I really appreciated out of that was a couple of nuggets. Is Number one, his insight on how the cancellation of college football in the Big Ten and Pac-12 is going to impact student-athletes. Um, and Coach has been around guys for years, and he's been one of the best in the business and being a champion for student-athletes, not only on the field, which we've seen the results there, but also – a champion in terms of making sure that players are taken care of off of the field. Um, just because he's been around so many players that have had um, impactful lives and, and, and different struggles on and off the field that he's needed to be there. Um, so hearing that was great. And then number two, just what it, what he looks for in a player that he wants to bring in those qualities. And I think that anybody listening to this, whether you're an aspiring coach, an aspiring athlete, um, recruits who might be listening to this. If you are somebody who works in business and you're growing an organization, I really think that's valuable advice because those personality types are necessary to make any type of business, any type of organization, any type of team thrive. So I appreciate coach for that. Um, just wanted to jump this in here real quick too. I want everybody to go to zdianetwork.com and click shop when you get on that website. And I want you to use promo code JP for 10% off some of the apparel in the shop. Now, we've got great apparel in there. There's this Washington Buckeye shirt. It's fantastic. Obviously, we've got a few guys down there, Terry McLaurin, Dwayne Haskins, and the Predator, Chase Young. So we've got a cool shirt for that. And there's also really, really awesome JP Show apparel. So I want everybody to go in there. Again, ZDNetwork.com, click shop, check that out. Really, really cool stuff. So I wanted to end this show, like I do with every show, with a word. And the word this week is disappointment. I've said it so many times during this show. It's absolutely fitting. I was disappointed in my fiance's sisters because of the way that they acted. And I'll, I'll rewind that by defining disappointment. It's the feeling of sadness or displeasure caused by non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. Non-fulfillment of one's hopes or expectations. So I was disappointed in the girls. And it wasn't sadness, really. It was more displeasure in their behavior. And it was the non-fulfillment, not of my hopes for them, but my expectations for them. I expected them to behave themselves better, and they didn't. They went out, they wanted to show out, and so I had to, myself, go ahead and correct their behavior out of my displeasure, my disappointment for that. 2020 has been very disappointing for me, and part of it is hopes. I had a lot of hopes for this year. I hoped I would be back on Big Ten Network stage. Actually, that was an expectation for me, but I hoped I would be able to grow my business beyond my uh, own personal beliefs. And I have grown it, but it has not been beyond the beliefs that I thought I would. Um, I had hoped that I would have a normal engagement during 2020, and I haven't because of COVID-19. Um, 
like I said, there have been some expectations that have fallen short, expectations in leadership that have fallen short, expectations in friends that have been now corrected and, and people who I thought they were one thing and now they're another. I'm very disappointed. I'm sad for some of the friendships I've lost. I, am, uh, I have displeasure for some of the situations I've seen people get into this year. Um, it's been a disappointing year, but I think the hopes and expectations part is how we get over our disappointment. So I always say to people, hope is not a strategy. I think we all need hope, but you can't live your life off of hope. You can't plan your year around hope. I think you plan your year around expectations. That goes kind of more so to goal setting and having a plan for things. So one thing I always say is I'm disappointed because I do have hope, right? So my disappointment be comes because my hopes are at a certain level, but I'm not surprised. My phrase is disappointed, but not surprised. And my surprise is not there just because of my expectations. So I hope one thing, but I always have my expectations somewhere else. And so for everybody dealing with disappointment this year, I know it's a, a terrible thing to deal with. Nobody likes being sad. And I think this has actually been a year of prolonged sadness, which is gonna have some repercussions into the future. So folks, make sure you take care of yourself and your mental state. Uh, make sure you check in on people and their mental state as well for the sadness part. The displeasure is something I think that is more of a, you know, how do I wrap my mind around this? I'm not very, I'm not very satisfied with what I'm seeing. But again, I think the, the, the disappointment is tempered when you have hopes at one place and expectations at another. So you can be disappointed because your hopes were not attained, but you're not surprised because you had level-headed, um, very even-minded expectations and what you were looking at. So just wanted to wrap that in there, folks. If you're disappointed about anything that's gone on this year, if you're disappointed at 2020 in general from the lives that were taken from us, um, people that we expected to see into the future from the goals and dreams and visions that you had, whether it was a normal college graduation, whether it was a wedding that you had planned, whether it was a job promotion that has now been stifled because of COVID-19, whether it was your expectation of watching the Ohio State Buckeyes play football on TV, and now we're watching Pickerington Central versus Pickerington North instead. All of these things are normal. Just make sure that you're able to reconcile with them so you can continue to move forward. So with that, I'd love to wrap out this show. That is it for us today, folks. I want to thank my all-star producer, Andrew Zolden, for doing a great job as he always does. I'm signing off of the ZDN Network. I am Joshua Perry, and this is The Joshua Perry Show.